0: One of the jobs that, that I didn't realise you had was that you used to cover versions of, of hits for a for a, a sort of a cheap record company. Yeah, well, I mean, they still do them. Um, there was a Robin Gibb number one record called Save by the Bell, and I did a, a cover version for a Dutch company, which I got paid 25 quid for, and I had to do Save by the Bell. And the only way I could do it was going Save
1: by the Bell. On your own.
0: And by by the end of the sixth take, I looked like Arthur Mullard, my new. out. <laughs> Friday the winds blew July, September I knew you Now as I sit on the sand hill I sing our song to
1: the sea August, October That Dutch
2: version of Saved by the Bell is the holy grail of these Elton sessions. Sadly, I haven't been able to locate it. This is the much better known August October, which still has Elton emulating Robin Gibbs' distinctive vocal style by tugging away at the skin of his throat. Anyway, hello and welcome to episode 18 of the, I guess that's why they call it the Elton John podcast, podcast. Apologies, as ever, for the delay in getting an episode out. Today's episode is a special one, a celebration of the anonymous sessions that Elton did back in the late 60s and early 70s for the budget-price cover versions albums that found their way into many a record collection and indeed into many a charity shop record bin, much to my delight. It's difficult to conceptualise just how many of these budget cover version records were sold in their heyday. For a short time in 1971, when they were actually allowed to take their place in the mainstream album charts, they crowded the upper reaches and they pushed out conventional releases. They were utterly disposable. In all likelihood, almost no one listened to 1970s hot hits. In 1971, if they had, they would have heard the unmistakable tones of Elton John all over the place. Many of Elton's recordings came out through the Chartbusters series on the Marble Arch label. They were repackaged into multiple sleeves and configurations on labels like Boulevard and Avenue. Elton also contributed to other series like the much better known Top of the Pop series from Hallmark, which had the more scantier clad women on the cover. It's fascinating how late Elton kept on doing the day job. These sessions seem to have taken place almost up to the point that Elton left for the Troubadour. Take the series England's Top 12 Hits, for example, which came out every couple of months on Avenue in the early 70s. Catalogue number AVE055, released in June 1970, features five Elton John lead vocals. Catalogue number AVE061, which was released just six months later, has a cover of your song on it. Then, really bizarrely, the next one in the series, which was AVE-067, features Jack in the Box, which Elton actually recalls singing on. In an interview with Paul Gambaccini in 1973, this is what he said, musically, they were very, very good, but the songs were awful. I'll be your Jack in the Box, and I used to go, whoop, doop, doop. So according to Elton, he actually did some of these after he broke America. Jack in the Box was only selected to represent the UK in the Eurovision Song Contest in February, 1971. So it's very unlikely to have been recorded before then. Bizarre. Anyway, as Elton notes, the quality of the musicianship is second to none. The players have got some real pedigree. The musical director for many of these sessions, most of which took place at Pi Studios in London was Alan Caddy. A few years older than Elton, Alan had studied violin at the Royal Academy of Music and sung in the choir at Westminster Cathedral. In the late 50s, he was a member of Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, playing rhythm guitar alongside Joe Moretti's lead on the timeless classic Shaking All Over in 1960. Then, as a member of the Tornadoes, he backed Billy Fury and played lead guitar on Telstar, which I'm talking all over. As producer Joe Meek was famously tone-deaf, Caddy ended up being his arranger and musical director for many of his projects. Caddy became an actual arranger in the 60s arranging for artists such as Dave D. Dozy, B. and Titch and Dusty Springfield. I've read that he arranged and played guitar for the Spencer Davis group but he isn't credited anywhere for this. There's an interesting record that was released on Phillips and Fontana in Europe in late 1967 called Top 15 Flower Power which mostly features Soundalike recordings presumed to be Alan Caddy's as well as a couple of actual recordings by Dave D, Dozy Beaky, Mick and Titch and the Spencer Davis group and that kind of backs up the idea that the Spencer Davis group had some sort of ongoing relationship with Alan Caddy As we know, Elton knew Muff Winwood very well indeed through his work at Mills Music. And so, this is rather convoluted, I know, but this is the best guess that I've got as to how Elton was introduced to Alan Caddy. Elton was not unknown on the session scene at the time. He'd played on sessions dating back as early as 1966, as far as I can tell, more of which in an upcoming episode. Who knows he might even be on top 15 flower power. I've ordered one, so I'll report back.
0: You walk me down to the church when I'm sixty years of age, when the ragged dog that gave me has been ten years in the grave. A singorita plays guitar, plays it just for you. My rosary has broken. The beads all
3: slipped
2: through. For many of the sessions, the bassist was John Fiddy. He doesn't have Caddy's pedigree. He did, however, arrange and conduct a couple of singles with A-sides that were written by Elton and Bernie in 1970 for a chap called Hayden Wood, who was a singer who'd come over from New Zealand in the same wave as the Bee Gees. And those singles were 60 Years On and Ballad of a Well-known Gun. I'm talking all over the full orchestral and choral arrangement of 60 Years On, which is somehow even more dramatic than Buckmaster's interpretation. there were high hopes for 60 years on. Here's Hayden talking to Radio New Zealand.
4: We actually got 60 years played on BBC and we, everyone was raving about this record because it was so different and of course it was written by Alton John and, um, and he heard and liked it as well um, and so we had, it, we had it all set up to play on Tony Blackburn's. and of course I'm, I'm rat, and I knew, we knew exactly what time was coming on so we all sat around the radio listening and uh, this is when I came down to earth with a very, very big bump because he put it on just before the news. And he got halfway through the song and said, oh, I'm, I can't remember the words, but it was something like, thank goodness we don't have to listen to any more of that. Uh, the mm. news is on, And, uh, of course, I'm sitting there and uh, I just, uh, my heart went down in the boots, you know.
2: I imagine Elton and Bernie there at their own kitchen table as well, spluttering on their steak and eggs. The album, which included a third Elton song, The Greatest Discovery, was pulled. It did apparently get a release a little later on in New Zealand. Anyhow, the connection between Elton and Hayden Wood might just as well have come via the label rather than through John Fiddy, since NEMS, which was his label, and Dick James were very intertwined. All the same, it's a nice
0: diversion. Take a pinch of white man Wrap it up in black skin
1: Add a touch of blue blood And a little bitty bit of red in your boy Curly back and king gives
2: Mixed with yellow
1: chinkies
2: On to the singers. This is a duet between two of the more commonly heard voices on these recordings, Dana Gillespie and David Byron, singing the Blue Mink song, Melting Pot. Blue Mink were stablemates with Elton. Their songs were written by Rogers Cook and Greenaway. Madeline Bell sang along with Roger Cook. And the rhythm section was Herbie Flowers and Barry Morgan. So, from one bunch of session musicians to another. This is Dana, David and what sounds like Elton on the piano. David Byron was an extremely versatile singer, a real gift for Alan Caddy. He went on to do a lot more than cover sessions. He became the front man for Uriah Heep, who were a hugely successful proggy early metal band, who incidentally had Nigel Olsen drum on one song on their debut album. The other vocalist here, Dana Gillespie, has one of the most impressive biographies you're ever gonna read. She was Lionel Bart's neighbor and friend. She was a four-time British junior water skiing champion. Her first single was recorded with Jimmy Page at the age of 15 in 1965. She was all over the London folk scene at that time. She was a friend of Donovan. They recorded together and she was more than a friend of Dylan. She features in Don't Look Back, the documentary where Dylan mentions that he loves her songwriting as she was a part of the entourage of the infamous shows in 1965 when Dylan turned electric, turning off his fans in the process, or some of them. Much later, Dana supported Dylan when he toured the UK in 1997, culminating in a sellout show at Wembley. She wrote the whole of her own second album herself at the age of 19 she'd also known David Bowie or David Jones as he was back then from her mid-teens going to the marquee with him getting into a relationship with him Bowie originally wrote Andy Warhol for her and she recorded a whole album called weren't born a man on RCA with Bowie and Ronson producing it She sang on It Ain't Easy on the Ziggy Stardust album. She starred as Mary Magdalene in the original production of Jesus Christ Superstar. Nowadays she tours all over the world, recording and releasing music in Sanskrit, as well as blues music with her own band. And me, what do I do? Well, I arrange a phone interview with her just for me to drone on about these obscure sessions that she did back in the late 60s and early 70s.
4: You see, I can't even remember the years, and I looked in my LP collection. I thought I had a couple of the albums, but I couldn't find them. They might be somewhere secretly stashed. They do
2: They do have some very fruity covers, don't they?
4: they were always some sort of... Dodgy bird falling out of a bikini, or some sort There's of actually one with of, a man, I think. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, they.
2: I think they trialled that. It didn't go down very well. Stuck to the women mm,
4: after that. Yeah, I wouldn't. I would have thought so. One of my best friends then, and he still is one of my best friends, was a guy called Mike Hewitson, and he worked for Elton for many, many years. Mm. And um, he's just actually sent me an email from Canada yesterday because he's just written his memoirs of. 30 years with Elton, which is, oh. because I knew Elton was still Reg when I first met him. Yes, and he would I have been a,
2: a very low-key figure, I suppose, not a megastar in any way.
4: No, but he, he already, one already knew that he had a great voice, he had mm. a good voice, because it was myself, him and David Byron from Uriah Heep who did a lot of the vocals for these. Avenue recordings for a man called Alan Caddy
2: yeah his his work is very impressive he got right under the songs didn't he
4: well in those days you had to sound exactly like the original because it cost money to have the originals playing over, over the tannoy in what was then a wimpy bar that's where people went to I mean the wimpy bars don't mean a thing for people now
2: there's still a wimpy in the Broadmarsh Centre in Nottingham
4: is there yes well yeah but it was they were were all over the place then and their hamburgers were pretty grim but that's you know we didn't have coffee bars and cafes like now so you go into let's say wimpy and you could sit and hear the top 20 hits being played but over the channel but they wouldn't have been done by the originals and very few people actually knew the difference because yeah the music just wasn't available as it is now. No, you'd
2: get it on the radio or you'd spend money on the singles.
4: Yeah, you'd go and buy, I think, a single cost Six and Eight in those days, in old money.
2: And the, the, you could get an album for that, couldn't you? But not with the original musicians. How long did you spend on a song, do you think?
4: Um usually how Alan Caddy did it was that he'd give us a recording or the actual recording. Mm. We'd have to sort of listen to it quite a few times. He'd give us, well, this is how he dealt with, with me. I don't know how he did the others, but probably the same. Yeah. You got your, your original, you listened to it over and over again. And then you went in and sang it in Pi Studios. We did it in behind Marble Arch, which was a big studio.
2: And he, did he write charts out for the string musicians? Yep. He did. So he'd already done that in advance, then. He wasn't doing that. Many. Yeah, he had
4: to... I mean, everything had to be scripted out because, you know, the strings and horns and things, everything had to sound exactly like the original. So yes. that, You know, that they didn't have to pay whatever it is, the MU, Musicians' Union, rates. I guess that's why it was done that way, so that people could play the charts without having to go out and have the expense of buying the charts. Yes, so it was all
2: reproduced by ear, wasn't it?
4: Yeah.
2: Elton talks about uh, recording Back Home, the England World Cup song. I've heard him speak about it before as being particularly amusing. Do you remember any songs
4: from that? I don't... Do you know, I I find... The only ones I can remember, I certainly didn't sing on Back Home. Oh, didn't you? I don't... Well, if I did, I can't remember... The tracks that I do remember doing was Sugar by the Archie. Ah, Sugar Sugar, Sugar da, da, yeah. Da, 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 yeah. That's honey you, is
2: I, think I that's, that, that's 69, isn't it? That's a little earlier. It's,
4: I have no idea. I think so.
2: I think it is.
4: Um, I remember doing The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down or whatever that Joan Baez song was. Um, Melting Pot by this mm. man called Blue Mink. That was definitely me and... Byron and, and Reg. There, there's
2: a version of you singing Young, I think it's you, singing Young, Gifted and Black. Do you remember doing that one?
4: Could be, but I... Do you know, I can't... I,
2: I, I might send you I might send it you on YouTube and you'll you be able to recognise your voice. It sounds like you.
4: OK. Well, the only other singer that could have been could have been a girl called Leslie Duncan. But I don't think it was. But the thing is, I think Alan used... Us cheaper chirpers, as it, it was known, because the people that did all the the kind of backing vocals used to get slightly higher rates. We were on a member, we'd get, I think, 25 quid a track. 25 maybe, pounds a track? Really? Yeah. That's not bad. Good. That not bad good. in those days. Doesn't and I sound have bad. a feeling we got 50 quid if we did a lead vocal. Oh, I see. Um. Different if it was just backing stuff. Because I, I remember he had me singing the whole of Cabaret, the musical, as <laughs> the lead vocals, and I'd got rather well paid for that. But I never saw it ever used anyway. It's probably disappeared off the planet now.
2: Were they done out of hours at Pi, or were they uh, just a regular session? They weren't done on Saturday or in the evenings or anything
4: like that. Oh, I can't remember that. Fair but enough. I would would have thought not, because in those days musicians' union was pretty strict. If you went, I don't know, 10 minutes past your tea break time, you'd have the unions coming down on you. Or <laughs> I wouldn't have thought it would have been a Sunday because they charged double, I think. I can't remember what the union rates were because it didn't really interest me, but you had to think about them when you booked... Your musicians. It was very much something that hung in the air. Yes. You couldn't, uh, you we had to think, counting the cost. I remember him once coming to the studios at Pi Studios saying, I'm signing with DJM, Dick yes. James Music. And that was for Lady Samantha, I think the mm. was. And he said, You know, I'm now Elton John, because I don't think we ever called him Elton, actually. No. I remember him always turning up in the studios in a sort of what looked like a schoolboy's jacket with sort of piping round the edge you know he was he was a little chunky and he was, a uh, but he was always fun a, a friend of mine gerard mankovich took some great early pictures of him there's a, have you ever seen this book called 50 years of rock and roll no no it's a i mean it's not a very expensive book but it's a nice big thick coffee table thing and there's he and I are on the next pages to each other.
2: I'm thinking about the timeline, and I'm very interested in the idea of Elton coming in and saying, because I think you're right, because he signed again with DJM before Lady Samantha. But that was quite, that was around, that was sort of late 68 that time. So I wonder, if, would that have been during these sessions that you remember him yeah. saying those sorts of things? That's yeah, it was it one of the
4: sessions, yeah. Do you remember knowing much about
2: his music at that time?
4: No, nope, not a thing. <laughs> not a thing. I mean, obviously, once the album came out with you know your song and everything, yes, then everyone, then then I was thinking this is a great album. But I was just you know in the early days before he'd actually recorded Lady, Lady Samantha, I certainly didn't know what he was doing musically. I just you knew he had a good voice and we had a lot of laughs at the sessions. He was funny. Yeah, he wasn't, he's quite a shyish guy, but you know, the thing with any musician is once the music starts, you just start to, it makes you feel good. So people cheer up.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Dana, for going back to those days with me. What an absolute sport she is. I've taken ages getting this ready, this episode. I'd hoped to release it before... She went out to do some summer live dates in the UK, but regrettably they've already happened. If you do want to catch her live, there are gigs listed on her website, which is linked in the episode description. She's playing Norwich Art Centre in October and London's 606 Club in November. Obviously, I didn't just talk to Dana about early Elton. Of course, we covered some other aspects of her fascinating career as well and I'm including the rest of that interview as a bonus so again check the links in the episode description if you want to have a listen to that. I thought there was some thought-provoking tidbits in the bit that I played There, not least the intriguing mention of an upcoming Mike Hewitson memoir. Mike was Elton's valet, buffer, bodyguard, whatever you might call it for quite a while, in fact, he was one of the last of the old guard to be moved on in recent years. Hmm, I wonder if Elton's camp aware of the existence of that particular manuscript. Um, unexpected for me was the timing thing, Elton coming into one of these sessions and saying that he just signed with DJM. That would seem to date that session to late 1968, and that's quite a lot earlier than any recognizable contribution from elton on any of these recordings i've seen references to elton doing backing vocals on uh, heard it through the grapevine in october of 1968 so it's plausible i must get a copy of that and have a listen Dana mentioned Sugar Sugar a hit by the Archies in July 1969 she took the lead on that one with David Byron but Elton can definitely be heard in the backing vocals once you start listening through these recordings it's quite a fun game trying to track him down it's a case of getting down the charity shops or onto discogs buying the records they're pretty cheap usually and just sticking your headphones on and you got me. The lead vocals that are unquestionably Elton have been covered in multiple releases. I'd say that Reg Dwight's Piano Goes Pop is the best of them. It's got the most tracks, 20 of them. And it's got some excellent liner notes written by Tim Joseph. Tim also compiled a set of cover versions called the Elton John Songbook. And he's also published a book about these records called When Cover Girls Ruled the Charts. I'm going to steer away from the tracks that are available on those CDs, but if you do have one, I'd recommend you give it another spin. There are some terrific tracks on there. It's so wonderful to have Elton with his young, reedy voice singing all this varied material. Elton as Stevie Wonder in Signed, Seal Delivered. Elton not quite reaching the vocal heights of Lou Christie in She Sold Me Magic. Elton's slightly disturbing attempts at a reggae vocal in Young, Gifted and Black and Love of the Common People as well. Much more effective is Elton's delightfully folky Cat Stevens turn in Lady D'Abanville. Elton does Al Jardine on cotton Fields. He belts out Good Morning Freedom, another Blue Mink song, alongside Claire Torrey, who went on to do the wordless vocal solo thing in the Pink Floyd song The Great Gig in the Sky. Elton has fun, I suppose you could call it, with In the Summertime doing the ooh and ahs in, in there, and then he gets preachy for the proto-glam song Spirit in the Sky. All of this is something that Rod Stewart fans don't get. We're quite lucky. Possibly Elton's first lead vocal was Snake in the Grass, a hit by Dave D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick and Titch. Elton's version apparently came out on Top of the Pops, Volume 5, in May 1969, about a month before Empty Sky was released. Beautiful. By the Bell would have been an early one too if we had it. That one came out in June 1969. Anyway, apart from Snake in the Grass, if it's on Reg Dwight's Piano Goes Pop, then I'm not going to play it today. The rest of the episode is going to be made up of excerpts from tracks that people have uploaded onto YouTube, as well as a couple of things that I've managed to find myself. Any research I've done has been dwarfed by the work that's been done by the likes of David Otto from Eltonography and another guy called Steve who compiles the to be completed discography their sites are linked in the episode description as well as some other sites that are devoted to these sound alike recordings first up then here's Elton's crack at question by the Moody Blues a hit in April 1970 I found it really hard to choose a snippet for this song it's almost five minutes long with loads of really varied disconnected sections so here's the whole thing.
1: Why do we never get an
2: just sounds fabulous on here drenched in reverb backed by moog organ i think and some pete townsend style acoustic guitar what a great sound for him moving on here's something that presented a real vocal challenge for elton bridge over troubled water the first half is just him and piano but here i've queued up the extremely intense ending entirely sure if that one's a success but it's great that it exists the next one is a bit of a niche one a lovely song rainbow which was a number three hit for marmalade in 1970 david byron takes the lead on this but elton is unmistakable on backing vocals
3: rainbow, look me up,
0: look me down rainbow you were fun to have
1: around i was dreaming of the love i had to share never thinking you were here you were there
2: such a sad little tune changing the mood somewhat the next one's got elton on backing vocals again and most likely piano too tackling status quos down the dust pipe a number 12 hit in march
1: 1970. rolling down the dust pipe now got a ten bill in my jeans because there ain't no room for a cold But I'm doing alright now. Rolling down the dustbite. No, 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 no,
2: no, no. Tony Blackburn dismissed this one as well, rather unoriginally, by declaring on his show, Down the Dustbin for this one. And this time it seems the record buying public didn't agree with him. The next one exists in two versions. One more common one has got Elton on backing vocals, but here he is taking the lead on Love Grows, Where My Rosemary Goes, a hit by Edison Lighthouse in January, 1917. quite typical. A backing track would be recorded and then more than one lead vocalist was allowed a run at it. Presumably this helped when it came to licensing the recordings out to other labels. Edison Lighthouse were a one-hit wonder but Tony Burrows, who sang the song, was anything but. He basically owned the 1970 pop charts. He released four hits under four different names. The others being Gimme Dat Ding, as the Pipkins, My Baby Loves Lovin' as White Plains, which was a Cook and Greenway song, and United We Stand as Brotherhood of Man. Elton had a crack at the lead vocal of all of these, except for Give Me That Ding. In all likelihood, it was Elton on the piano on the released version of United We Stand as well. He was definitely a part of the Brotherhood of Man's chorus for their Top of the Pops appearance so this anonymous cover version was quite an ironic recording for elton he sang the cover of the song along with kay garner a vocalist who contributed to take me to the pilot but i'm talking there about united we stand which i'm not currently playing anyway here is a tune that wasn't on youtube i transferred this one elton's on secondary vocals here this is wandering star a hit for Lee Marvin in March 1970 Exactly scream Elton but I think he rears his head here and there it's quite an amusing little artifact now there are two versions of Let's Work Together by Canned Heat on YouTube one with David Byron on lead and Elton on piano and a second one with Elton taking the lead but with no piano so just Elton bass drums and two rather filthy sounding guitars Here is the latter of those two versions. I'd say that the Byron version is the better version. I'll leave a link in the episode description for anyone who wants to do a comparison, but it's quite something to hear Elton in this context. Elton also took the lead for this song, Ma Belle Ami, a hit from the Dutch band T-Set in
1: 1970. Amaze me Believe in me now Start a new
2: folky little number suits Elton's voice perfectly this is the sort of thing I love to hear Elton singing the next tune not so much this is Elton taking on a rather oversized Jim Reeves EBG song called don't forget to remember without making use of the manually derived vibrato
0: this time on my wall.
2: This was a number two hit in the UK. It was released in August 1969, making this another early one for Elton. He was clearly seen as a bit of a BG specialist at first. Elton has talked about singing Back Home, the England Football World Cup anthem from the summer of 1970. He did that during an interview on Radio 2 with Richard Skinner in the early 90s. I haven't been able to track down that interview, unfortunately. I have tried extremely hard. I do remember Elton talking about how incongruous it was for all the vocalists to be pretending to be a bunch of footballers. This is the recording.
1: Back home!
2: Elton there but the images are strong one all the same those sessions sound like they were great fun which is probably why Elton kept coming back that and the odd 25 or 50 quid here or there there are some other backing vocals where Elton is distinguishable on YouTube Uh, there's all in the game which was a hit for the four tops in March 1970 I will survive by Arrival which was originally orchestrated by Paul Buckmaster Lola by The Wonderful Kinks and Knock Knock Who's There, uh, Mary Hopkins' entry to the 1970 Eurovision Song Contest. There are several more listed on David Boddo's page that aren't up on YouTube too. So, as I say, it's worth digging into this stuff if you're so inclined. I'm not gonna close with any of those though. Instead, here is a montage that was compiled for an album called 28 International Top Songs. This, again, wasn't on YouTube before, but I've uploaded the whole album to my YouTube channel. This is a really quirky thing. 28 tracks spliced and edited together, usually in groups of three, running at just under 45 minutes. It was a European release, a repackaging of a lot of the songs that can be found on other Avenue releases dating from 1969 and 1970. Elton takes the lead on nine of the songs, and he can be heard on backing vocals on a further six. The remarkable thing about this release is how the songs are linked. Between several songs, someone, a keyboardist, has been tasked with finding a way to segue from one track to the next by noodling away on the keyboard some of these links are short and direct others are longer and frankly a bit intrusive it's many people's belief mine included that elton wrote and played these links he might even have had something to do with the sequencing of the album as well finding songs that are in the same key and tempo The sequence I'm gonna play opens up with grooving with Mr Blow, an instrumental that's so central to the DJM story that it's surely gonna get its own episode here one day. Elton's bound to be on piano here. Up around the bend, the Credence Clearwater Revival hit is in the same key, so it's faded in quite neatly and naturally without any keyboard transition. Elton shares the vocal duties on this song, after this, the keyboardist ushers in "Let It Be" with some notes from a church organ. Then he drops in some Rhodes-like keyboard all over the song solo. The original Soundalike version, original Soundalike version, doesn't have keyboard here at all, or the wild guitar for that matter. So this seems to have been recorded especially for this album. Do you think this is Elton's work? Let me know. I've opened up a Facebook page for the podcast. Someone suggested I do it and I thought, well, why not? So you can put some feedback there if you want. Or as ever, email me on eltonpodcast at gmail.com. I promise to be back soon with a new episode.
3: Thank mm-hmm. you.